It's the 23rd of September, 2018, and this is episode 376 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello, Adam. And uh, I'm also here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas, how are you? Hello. Doing very well. Thanks, Adam. How's it going? Going pretty good. So I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. One of the biggest problems in cryptocurrency for the longest time has been the difficulty in moving back and forth from the traditional finance world and dollars and bank accounts and cryptocurrency. And the best solution that we've had for a long time are companies like Coinbase, which sort of bridge the gap between old-fashioned traditional financial entities and this sort of new wild west of cryptocurrency and all of the craziness that is entailed within that. But it's not a good way to do it. <laughs> it's never been a good way to do it. And, and if you do use Coinbase or something like that as a speculator or just as somebody who wants to use the benefit of uh, cryptocurrency and the neutral networks, but who doesn't necessarily want to deal with the volatility or the speculative nature of the tokens that we're generally talking about, something like Tether or other stable coins, as they are often called, seem like the answer to this problem. Although Tether in many ways has been that rock that was necessary for the community to be able to move out of speculative tokens and into something that has a value that is pegged or fixed to you know a more traditional dollar or something like that. At the same time, there is all of this noise and all of these questions and all of these accusations and theories about whether or not Tether actually has the money that they claim that they have that's sort of backing this entire enterprise. So I just want to take a little bit, you know, we don't often talk about stable coins. I just want to take a little bit of an opportunity here today to talk about both Tether the whole idea of stable coins, and then more importantly, the two new projects that have come out, which are another attempt, additional attempts to doing these stable coins in a compliant fashion and kind of what it means both for the community and what it means for the projects as a whole. I think we'd be remiss not to mention the BitUSD, which was, I think, the first stable coin I ever heard of. Ah, this is very important. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when the BitShares project was going on. This was probably in 2000. 15 maybe was when it really started picking up. They had created as part of the BitShares platform several assets that were pegged and like tokenized versions of real world currencies. So like they had BitUSD and theoretically any asset could be represented in a blockchain token in that way. There was always a lot of talk about, well, isn't this kind of like funny math? Like, how are you going to actually make sure that the value of this token stays as close as possible to the value of whatever asset it's supposed to be pegged to, for example, U.S. dollars? And they had various answers to that. There was also some pegging in the, the Steam platform, as I recall. They had said that they were going to solve the problem by, well, if the value gets too high of the crypto asset relative to the U.S. dollar, then they would you know, basically create more of the crypto tokens. And if the value got too low, then they would bring in investment and back sort of back the crypto token with actual real world assets. And I never quite got how that would work. It seemed like it wasn't exactly an automated process. And 
I don't know. I never really trusted them, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I've always been kind of skeptical that it's possible to really keep a peg going without basically someone becoming the Fed, essentially, of a cryptocurrency. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, the only way to maintain a peg in this particular case is to control the supply of these coins and make sure that they're 100% equivalent to the reserves you have. And as people bring new dollars or whatever the underlying currency is into the market, you put those in a reserve account and you issue an exact equal amount. But you also do the opposite, which is as people try to withdraw dollars, you remove from circulation. Now, if you control the supply in that way, the rest should be basic market economics and the peg should maintain. In theory, right? But I mean, doesn't it just sort of come down to trust again? Because you are sort of having to trust that whatever group is creating the pegged cryptocurrency actually does have the reserves to support it and that they're going to be on top of maintaining the peg through carefully controlling the supply of the cryptocurrency. Yeah, and this is exactly the same problem you have with any asset backed security or any asset backed instrument of any kind, whether it's gold denominated paper, so paper equity instruments or ETFs or other tradable instruments that represent reserves of gold, where we've seen, you know, the speculation as to whether the gold is actually there is now as old as the instrument itself, as well as cash settled futures in everything, copper, pork bellies, aluminum, you know, the, the number of scandals we've seen with hypothecation of asset backed things in China and other places is, is endless. And the same thing with pegged currencies when those are maintained by a government that doesn't have trust, you know, various governments, especially in South America, from time to time have tried to use a pegged currency as a way to control or marshal existing hyperinflation or prevent hyperinflation in their own currencies. But even economies like Switzerland and China have also had at various times or attempted to maintain pegs. Not very successful. Again, as you said, it's down to trust. Yeah, oftentimes what you see happening is that, like for example, with was it the, uh, the Bolivar in uh, Venezuela? I think it was the Bolivar. I think it was also the Brazilian Real uh, that was similarly pegged. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are lots of examples of this in different economies where what you'll see is there's an official exchange rate and then there's the market exchange rate, which can often be extremely divergent. <laughs> Not at first. At first, they're match. But then as the system starts to break down and as they're unable to maintain that peg, you see wildly divergent exchange rates between the official exchange rate and the market exchange rate for a specific currency pair. And there are increasingly uh, desperate attempts to control it, right, by cracking down on people who are not using the official exchange rate. And there's sort of this maintenance of a, almost a facade, right? And the trust has been broken, but the official government doesn't want to admit it or whoever's issuing that peg currency. Well, keep in mind, though, that in all of those cases that we just mentioned, you don't have a 100% reserve. You can't have a 100% reserve. You can't run a country like uh, Bolivia or um, Brazil or Argentina, that all of which I think at some point have had pegs, 
holding 100% reserves of the actual money in circulation in that country in US dollars and foreign currency reserves to back the currency that you issue in pesos because like every other country they're running a fractional reserve banking system so the actual money in circulation is far more than the reserves it would be impossible for them to have that many foreign reserves now that's a very big difference from for example tether or some of the other stable coins where at least in theory you do have a hundred percent reserve because the crypto economy is a fraction of the size of the dollar economy and also a fraction of the size even of the primary cash in circulation of the US dollar. So you can actually have that much dollars in reserve. I think that uh, Stephanie brought up a really important point here that we haven't really discussed, which is that there's more than one way to peg a token. There's more than one way to create one of these dollar-type tokens. and There is a difference between something like Tether and something like BitUSD or other attempts. And There have been actually a lot of attempts. And The difference between these types of things is that, on the one hand, with something like Tether or many of these other new types of stablecoins that have been coming out recently, it is an attempt, and it does claim to have 100% backing. And then so that means that there's companies that have to, you know, be licensed and there have to be vaults that are maintained and there have to be claim procedures. And auditing and supposedly records being published. Exactly. So there's there's a lot of infrastructure required on that side that has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. It just has to do with kind of the legacy interface and all of the stuff behind that and, and trust. And then on the other side, with something like BitUSD or the Steam attempts or the many other attempts that we've seen. These are really more attempts to create instruments that track the price by aligning incentives, but they actually have no connection to the underlying dollar. So if it's like backed by a dollar, well, it's not actually backed by a dollar. It's just that the market has an incentive to treat it as if it's backed by a dollar. And then if that goes down, then there are you know self-balancing mechanisms that try and right the ship. But as we've said, that's really, really hard. And if the way that you solve that problem is by diluting your currency further, then you're actually creating more of a problem then you probably are solving by by solving your short-term problem. That's an important part. Early on, we tried to do these tokens that in an objective real-world sense seem to perform the function pretty well, but were not actually backed by anything. And now increasingly, I'm seeing people who are moving towards the projects we've seen come out are attempts to be Tether, but with people trusting them. Because that's a problem that Tether has is lots and lots of people use it and the exchange is like it's become the way to deal with dollars if you don't want to deal with dollars for a number of years. But at the same time, nobody trusts it. And there are all these rumors are going on around it. And it might, in fact, be you know worse than the incentive systems if, in fact, the rumors are correct. So that's important is that there are two different ways to do these types of tokens. One is you go with the incentives approach and you don't even try to back it and deal with all the real world trust issues. And the other is you say, okay, we're not going to do anything with cryptocurrency except use it as a token. And then we solve all the other problems on kind of the legal and backend. I'd like to explore something else here, which may be a tiny bit of a tangent, but will clarify a lot of this. We've talked so far about stablecoins from the perspective of using them as, let's say, stable, as something that has less volatility than crypto because it's tied to a larger economy. But I think people are missing one of the big functions of stablecoins has nothing to do with volatility, and it has everything to do with liquidity and arbitrage. And that is that if you have an exchange in a country where there are currency controls or the banking system is hostile to crypto or the exchanges keep having problems with bank accounts, 
in general, when you're comparing the velocity and liquidity of cryptocurrencies and the fluidity of those, where they can be transmitted across borders instantaneously, versus the three to five days domestically or three to five weeks internationally, if your wire ever gets there, kind of velocity of a US dollar wire transfer. One of the fundamental functions of stablecoins in this particular market is to be able to give the dollar the velocity of crypto. And that is really important in arbitrage. Now, let's say you have a region or market, say India, where you have a 40% premium or a 20% premium on crypto any moment in time. How is that even possible for Bitcoin, for example, to be 20% more expensive in India? It's really simple. It's not Bitcoin that's 20% more expensive. It's the value of a rupee that you can't export that's 20% less and can buy you less Bitcoin. <laughs> and, and that's the price differential. Now, you could arbitrage away that difference very easily. You could buy Bitcoins elsewhere, sell them in India, move the money from India out, oops, and that's where your problem is. Because you could repeat the cycle endlessly if, you, if only you could move money out from India, right? But you can't. You can only move crypto out of India. And this applies to all kinds of markets where you have currency controls. One of the big functions of these stable coins is to be able to have the same type of fluidity, liquidity on the dollar side, on the fiat side, as you have on the crypto side, so that arbitrage can work, and more importantly, so that exchange-to-exchange -exchange transfers can work. If you want to move large amounts of dollars from OKEX to Bitfinex or to another exchange, you can't do that with wire transfers. It's simply not practical, but you can with a stablecoin. That's a great point. You know the liquidity that's offered by stable coins, and you know we talked about it as kind of a removal of volatility, and that's what it is here too. But that's but it, it's a removal of volatility while keeping the other characteristics about cryptocurrency and these neutral networks that make them so valuable. And it bypasses a lot of the regulatory burden that is involved in touching the fiat system. The moment you touch the fiat system, you have all of these problems. And if you use a stable coin, you don't have any of these problems, or at least that's the effective use of them today. Ironically, I think one of the things that we're doing here, it's almost, and I'm going to stretch this analogy a lot, it's almost as if Tether and other stable coins are like the lightning network of the US dollar. You take US dollars, you park them in a bank account, just like you take Bitcoin and park them in a multi-sig. You take them essentially off-chain and you lock them into a reserve. And then, essentially, you trade those locked things on a different blockchain or in the case of lightning in payment channels right so you 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 basically take the dollars off the fiat chain and then you can trade them very very fast for very very low fees across borders just like taking bitcoin off chain and putting it in lightning allows you to move it really really fast with very very low fees and that's a really important function of these stable coins completely separate from volatility i also want to caution us using the word backed by it's a different thing to say that there's a reserve of US dollars behind a stable coin or a reserve of another type of fiat currency and a completely different thing to say it's backed by because backed by starts hinting at some kind of intrinsic value and you can't back say tethers with dollars because dollars aren't backed by anything 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I would say, in fact, that U.S. dollars are one of the original stablecoins because, in many ways, what we have today, the Federal Reserve note, used to be backed by a one hundred percent reserve, and it was pegged to one silver dollar, which is a very specific quantity of silver, and that peg broke down and today it's worth you know it's lost 97% of its value against the peg it once had the federal reserve note is a stable coin that used to be pegged on one silver dollar that's a very interesting way to look at it but it's not too far off no i think that's great and i like the analogy to the lightning network of us dollars as well because it really just speeds things up and in a way you are kind of taking the dollars off chain and <laughs> moving around these these tokens that are more liquid in that environment the problem is it's not the trustless decentralized model of lightning it's a centralized trusted third party that has those reserve accounts and you have to be able to trust that party. That's the big difference. And that's, of course, where all of the problems arise. There's always a temptation to go fractional reserve. Absolutely. And that temptation may have nothing to do with greed. It may have to do with trying to close a hole. As we've seen again and again, most of the time, when you have that kind of going to fractional reserve, or also known as a Ponzi, <laughs> or that kind of fraud in terms of the reserve, the reason it happens is not because greed happens. It usually happens for another reason, which is that a loss happened on the back end. So some of the reserve was stolen somehow. And the company doesn't want to reveal that they lost some of the money. Right, because that would be breaking the trust, right? People right. are supposed to trust them. That would destroy the system. So then they try to make up for it by either trading or fees or appreciation in another asset, etc. And they get deeper and deeper into the hole because they start leveraging the rest of the assets in order to make up for the hole. This is exactly what happened at MT Gox, but it's also exactly what happened with a very broad range of Ponzi schemes in history. You have a small loss and then the lie to cover that up becomes the Ponzi. And it's desperation, it's not greed that drives that usually. Adam, I think it's important that you pointed out that there are different ways to peg or to approach trying to maintain a peg, but they each have uh, their problems and drawbacks and disadvantages. And there's still always that incentive for the system to break down eventually. It's very difficult to maintain. I think there's the potential for the system to break down. I think that you can't avoid that. It's not like it's going to be this way for the rest of our lives, but we're at this point where I keep saying it, you know, no best practices, just first practices. And I think that this is just essentially uh, the next iteration of that. I think it also reveals a very interesting cultural difference. If you look at the response of most of the purists, the maximalists, the cypherpunks, and you know the people who believe that you're going to get hyper-Bitcoinization, for example, right? They look down on stablecoins, as in, why would you need to peg our beautiful cryptocurrency to dirty fiat that has no backing or value anyway they're all going to die eventually and then only one will emerge you know that kind of approach and they may be very well be right and then you have kind of the more investments wall street side and what can i say i mean wall street seems to very much be into pegging <laughs>
Yes, Wall Street does seem to very much be into pegging. Maybe it's just part of the culture. I don't know. But do you think that there are people who feel more comfortable when a currency is sort of pegged to something that they already can wrap their mind around? Do you think it makes cryptocurrency more accessible or do you think the appeal is more just on the based on the ease of use? I think it's entirely for the mechanics of trading. Otherwise, I don't think it makes any difference. In fact, I, anybody who looks at these stable coins, it's similar enough to raise all of my hackles. You know, it's like it's almost like the uncanny valley. It almost looks like a dollar, but it's different enough that I don't trust any of it because at least I know I know the Federal Reserve System and kind of how it works. It's appalling. It is. That's the thing, though, is that it's the status quo. It. It does function now for the majority of people who are forced to use it. But the thing about dollar tokens or the thing about any of these really pegged tokens is it's not about the token. It's about the friction that's inherent within the system that makes it so that a token actually seems like a more efficient way to do it than to use centralized systems. Because, I mean, there's no question here that centralized systems just on their face if you don't have any of the other issues that surround centralized systems are much, much, much more efficient, scalable, have all of these other characteristics. So it's not that it's better to do it with a token. It's that it's possible to do it with a token. EasyDNS is a domain name provider and registrar that shares our values, flexibility, free speech, and control without lock-in. EasyDNS helps you meet your individual needs as the Swiss Army knife for domain names since 1998. Outspoken defenders of privacy, due process, and great service, the folks at EasyDNS are long-term, enthusiastic supporters of the Bitcoin movement as well as this program. Please support our sponsor and head over to EasyDNS.com where you can handle all your domain needs and pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or Ethereum. So when you're thinking about domains or hosting, think easydns.com. I think it's interesting to talk about kind of the specifics of the projects. We're, this is not a comprehensive look at any of these projects, but just to kind of talk about a couple of the differences. One of the things about Tether is that it was the first project to come out that said, we actually have this money. You can deposit money into Tether you know, it'll be real money and you can pull money out. You can pull tethers back out into real money. And the thing about it is that Tether has never been able to offer this on sort of a broad level. You've needed to be a really, really big user. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's definitely larger than the type of use that I've ever done. You know, in order to be able to actually create new tethers with money that you put in via bank wire or to pull tethers back out into money. And so in addition to that, they've had banking problems, right? Tether is operated by primarily Asian and European companies with Bitfinex being sort of the primary patron. As a result, the friction that has surrounded that part of the process has made it so that even though it's technically backed, right, technically it's redeemable, Tether is redeemable for underlying dollars, it's been really a big point of contention because the rules around that have been unclear. One of the new projects that's come out is the Gemini dollar, which is uh, the Gemini exchange, the uh, exchange started by the Winklevoss twins a couple of years ago and, and pushing towards an ETF and all this other stuff. But with the launch of this stablecoin, one of the things that they've done or that they're doing is they're making it so that you can do what Tether promised, except that since they've jumped through all the legal hoops and have the permissions to do it within the US, they're actually able to do it. And so because of that, where you can't really trust Tether because they're sort of this uncertain process, 
on the Gemini side, that's not really true. And now we can actually see where people are putting in, you know, dollars that then become Gemini dollars and pulling Gemini dollars back out through this system in a much more accessible way than we've historically seen with something like Tether. So I think that maybe that is an attempt to solve this problem, right? It's an attempt to create a PEG token or a redeemable token, which actually does have trust possible because it does have this more transparent and accessible process for converting either way. And you keep the best parts of the sort of approach because effectively, since they run their own exchange, right, you have the KYC happening specifically at the exchange level, which means that if I want to create new tokens, then I have to go through a KYC process. If I want to take existing tokens and pull them out of the system, I have to go through a KYC process. But the period of time after someone has created these tokens and before they are redeemed, they can just travel like any other blockchain token and perform the function of a redeemable dollar, even if they're not redeemable to the person who is using them at that time. And so in this way, they're both empowering and also, frankly, I think it's a little bit of a dangerous approach just because historically we've seen the regulatory concerns have been substantial about those transactions, right? We're tracking it at the entry and exit points. The regulatory structure likes that part. But every time I've had this conversation with anyone, they've also wanted to track it at that individual level. And it seems like Gemini does not have to do that. Well, and that's where it gets interesting because I may be wrong about this. From what I understand, the Gemini dollar is a smart contract that runs on Ethereum. And not only is it a smart contract, but it is a smart contract specifically that as a token has the ability to both have the Gemini administrators reverse transactions as well as freeze accounts. So it's a controlled token, a highly centralized controlled token. So on the one hand, you have this combination of something that is on a very open blockchain, but is backed by a very regulated currency. You've got the pegging, you've got the KYC. But here's where it gets interesting. If this is a tradable token that can be traded on the Ethereum blockchain, that means that someone who has this token can then basically lock it into some form of multi-sig state channel. And if they can lock it into a state channel, you can effectively start running back channels between Gemini tokens, Gemini USD, that are now being traded more broadly than the participants that you have KYC'd. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Can we just stop for a second? What is a state channel and what, what would a back channel be? Can you just explain that? Yeah. The state channel is just a broader term for a payment channel, because when you're talking about tokens or contracts, it's not just payments, right? So those are state channels where basically you're using a channel in order to communicate the state between two participants. And just like with a payment channel, you're communicating the balance between two participants who have locked funds into the payment channel, and then they can do thousands and thousands of transactions and only settle the difference. Now, imagine two big holders of Gemini USD who then establish entry points into a payment channel network or state channel network like Raiden, which is one of the networks being developed on Ethereum like Lightning Network, similar concepts. And then basically all of that is invisible, right? You only see the batch transactions. So effectively, just like when you open and close a Lightning Network channel, the transaction is logged on the blockchain. When you open and close a Gemini USD state channel, 
that will be seen by Gemini between the two participants who are KYC'd, but all of the other transactions that happen in the channels are invisible, which is going to bring up a very interesting conundrum. I, I don't think they can control the back end of how this is going to be used on Ethereum as strongly as they think they can. And they may end up creating these secondary markets, which are outside of the KYC domain, that trades Gemini USD. Maybe that's a feature. <laughs> Maybe that's a feature, but New York DFS is in for a surprise if they think they've regulated this thing. Well, so Andreas, let's talk about that for a second. You know, I hadn't actually seen the financial regulator from New York and kind of how they'd been interacting on this. Can you share some about that? So from what I understand, Gemini has a bit license and all of this, including the Gemini dollar, is being done under the purview of the bit license and with the auditing for the reserves that the bit license has. So the reserves for Gemini are actually being audited by the New York Department of Financial Services under the New York bit license. One of the things that's different about Ethereum versus something like Bitcoin or the token protocols built on top of it is that because it's a smart contract defined protocol, you basically have all kinds of abilities to build in additional protocol level features into these smart contracts. And the one that we are starting to see happen more and more are whitelists. And a whitelist is where an address gets proactively flagged as being something that can do a thing, whereas anything that isn't proactively flagged as that cannot. And where this has come up in my research has been on the evolution of ICOs side as we move towards securitized token offerings, because there's a need within the regulatory structure for people who are going to be buying and transferring these things to make sure that they're transferring them to people who legally have the ability to transfer them to. Otherwise, they can incur fines and stuff like that. So you make an on-chain transaction and it goes to a whitelisted address, and you think that whitelisted address is controlled by the endpoint that you've done KYC on. But what if that endpoint that you've done KYC on then uses the very public information that that Gemini US dollars is in their possession to either back a whole other tethered token of their own, which they can, right? Which they can have different rules on. Uh, and all they have to do to prove the reserves is show that the Gemini USD is there. So you've got that situation, which is two steps away. Or even more crazy would be where the address that you've KYC'd isn't a private key generated address, but is a contract. And that contract is the endpoint for a payment channel, which drive straight into a whole network of other participants. Maybe they can keep track of that. Maybe they can't. Maybe the, the address that has been generated has been generated from... And, and here's the interesting thing. You can't know if an address is a contract until that address has transacted on the network. Here's the thing about Ethereum. You can actually predict what the address of a contract will be before you create it, because it's a function of the source that creates it. So you can predict what the address is, and you can give it a balance, or special rights within a contract, or Gemini USD balance. And to Gemini at that point, that address looks like, presumably, it's a private key generated address, but no, it's a contract that you haven't actually created. And as soon as you bring that contract into being, that contract controls that address and can withdraw on its behalf. Not only can you not predict whether an address is going to be owned by a private key or, or what's called an externally owned address or EOA, or whether it's a contract, but 
the owner of that contract could prove to someone else that that address is in fact not a private key but a contract by showing the hash of that contract in the code. And therefore, they can lock the Gemini USD into a contract that is the back end of a payment channel without ever committing that contract onto the blockchain. Because you only need to commit it in order to resolve the dispute, right, or to close the channel. There, there's all kinds of shenanigans that open up. This is what happens when you attach a regulatory domain to an open blockchain. I guess this brings me to the final point on this particular topic, which is these controls that are being built in at the smart contract level. The first generation of stuff that we saw, we're mostly talking about Tether here, did not use smart contracts. It used the Omni protocol, formerly known as MasterCoin. I believe that it's since moved to something else. I think it's on Litecoin these days or something like that. But bottom line is that it doesn't use smart contracts in the same way that these Ethereum-type approaches do. And because of that, the complexity of what they can accomplish and the types of controls that they can put in were a lot less. And so we saw a compromise, I think it was last November, we saw a compromise of the Tether system where Tethers were created inappropriately and then they were moved out. And they had to shut down the system for months at a time while they upgraded the wallet to sort of resolve the problem. And this is something that we've seen in the past where a compromise happens and a team decides to basically do a hard fork in order to recover whatever it is that's going on. Well, that's not necessary in these new types of projects. But isn't shutting the system down effectively like a freeze on people's funds almost? And in a smart contract type system, administrators can just directly freeze people's funds, right? The tools in the old type of approach are very, very broad, right? And so it's like the choice is shut down the system, change your software versus the approach here is effectively if they identify somebody who's problematic, right, or somebody who's doing something fishy, they can just freeze that account, right? Built into the smart contract are these controls. And it's ironic that Gemini actually has less, even though they have that ability, they have less intense abilities to control this than we actually see in one of the other projects that's come out recently, which is called the Pax Dollar. I was on Twitter the other day looking at John Bacchus's feed and he identified within it admin right access specifically intended for law enforcement that gives law enforcement and a law enforcement address the ability to not just freeze, but to actually confiscate or entirely burn balances that are within this blockchain, within this Ethereum smart contract for this instrument that also supposedly tracks dollars. Certainly only upon presentation of a smart warrant, right? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that, again, we, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about, you know, Bancor and about CryptoKitties and about how these well-intentioned controls that seemed like they were intended to solve problems actually become the vectors by which these products are attacked functionally because they are the clean path in where you don't have to find an exploit. All you have to do is compromise the person. Yeah, so we've come full circle. We've started with pegging and we've ended with backdoors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is absolutely a backdoor, especially if PAX didn't tell their users about it in the first place and it was discovered by somebody who was auditing the code or whatever. But this is completely out in the open. The problem with all of these things is, yes, in Omni, you had to hard fork in order to revert transactions and freeze transactions. But again, in this particular case, we're talking about being able to freeze or reverse transactions upon presentation of signatures of a set of private keys, some private keys somewhere. Okay, maybe they're multi-sig, maybe they're held in cold storage, whatever. But what that means is if those keys are compromised or if there is a bug in the contract, one of the two, then all of these tools could be used by person X who is not Gemini. 
The same thing with anything that you have for law enforcement. This is the reason why cryptographers laugh at the idea of the golden key and the uh, lawful interception backdoor, because you can't build a backdoor that only lets the good guys access, but does not let the bad guys access if they steal the keys. It's impossible to do, and any cryptographer knows that. Which is why if you weaken encryption, if you weaken systems by putting making it possible for backdoors to exist, then those systems are vulnerable to attacks. Right. And how does that combine with the real-world concept of asset forfeiture, in the United States anyway? If police suspect that there is cash involved in a crime, they can basically just confiscate it. And there's really not much due process included in that. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, if, if everyone is being KYC'd on their way into these types of projects, or if you're on the whitelist, like, then that means that you are identified. And that means that if any sort of order like this comes down against you, then this will get seized just as everything else does. You don't even need an order. Right. There's no warrant required. That's the whole point of civil asset forfeiture. You don't need anything. You just see cash, take cash. There are so many real-world stories of how asset forfeiture gets abused, and I know there are maybe some jurisdictions that are kind of like looking at it and thinking about it, but right now it's still a big issue in our legal climate. And I would imagine that with the stigma and suspicion of cryptocurrency among a lot of people who are involved in the status quo, like judges and law enforcement, that asset forfeiture could very easily be applied to cryptocurrency through the use of smart contracts or law enforcement lawful interception backdoors. It's only a matter of time until that starts happening. Let me just bring it back to the beginning of the conversation and, and talk a bit about how these stable coins have a number of different functions. One of them is to have a less volatile instrument that you can trade, but also one that is liquid and can move across borders and has fewer regulatory impositions than the US dollar. Yes, okay, we've brought KYC back in and now there's opportunities to freeze and seize and um, reverse transactions. So some of the advantages of cryptocurrencies have been removed. But at the same time, just to play devil's advocate against myself here, it's still better than the traditional banking system where all of those things can happen. The civil asset forfeiture, the arbitrary freezing and seizing of accounts, the ability for your money to disappear without warrants, the problem with reserve and whether the money's actually there, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the trusting a central third party, only without any of the velocity and cross-border flexibility of crypto. So it's still an improvement on the trade. This is the amazing thing that even the shittiest crypto product is still better than banking. <laughs> I think the other question from my side is now that we know, okay, so here's the kind of old pegged approach with Tether, right? And then you've got this newer pegged approach with something like Pax or something like Gemini. It seems almost like it's a choice between having to trust the regulators on the one side, right? versus having to trust Tether on the other side. So I don't know what who individually I, I would trust more on the regulatory side or actually Tether, but I think that where you fall on that spectrum determines whether or not you're in, more interested in something like Gemini Dollar or something like Tether, if you need something like this at all. And here's what comes next, which is, I think, even more interesting, and we need to think a couple of steps further. The next step in this, of course, is a central banked backed 
Bitcoin that's managed by the central bank, the central bank digital currency. Because how can you compete with a stable coin against the Federal Reserve issuing its own? And in terms of what kind of smart contract they're going to run, well, now they have some great examples. They can let these little experiments run, and then they can deliver onto the market a stable coin that works a hell of a lot better because it's got the same reserve as the actual fiat. So one thing is this is the first bridge to central bank digital currencies, to the true fiat cryptos. And then the other thing to think about a bit is what exactly is the value proposition of gateway blockchains or currencies like Ripple to banks if they could use a stable coin instead that's backed by actual US dollars where they hold the reserves? Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. This market is going to spread in two different directions. On the one hand, you're going to get banks backing this with reserves, and then Ripple has a dubious value proposition to them. And the other one is central banks are going to back it with reserves, and then you, you're straight into the good old fiat game, only on a whole new level. Can you imagine like smart contracts have their problems and issues of their own as the bugs are being worked out and they're kind of being figured out but can you imagine a government smart contract <laughs> like I don't know that kind of just makes my head explode Yes the uh, fed coin will be created by Lockheed Martin engineers <laughs> <laughs> for sure I feel like fed coin is really not that far off because most of the U.S. dollars that exist in the system, in the economy of U.S. dollars, are actually represented electronically anyway. They're not like paper or definitely not metal, you know. <laughs> and that's one of the ways that banks engage in fractional reserve banking is that there's numbers in a bank account, but if too many people try to withdraw cash at once, there's going to be a run on the bank. And creating things like mortgages and loans one of the complaints about that is that the bank is just kind of creating that money out of thin air, right? And then people are paying it back with real dollars. We already have something that is kind of close to FedCoin or the ultimate vision of FedCoin in a way, but it's kind of hodgepodge and haphazard. And it's just that there, there are U.S. dollars being represented electronically already in the system. It's not through a blockchain and it's not through smart contracts, but they are being represented electronically on various servers and banks and stuff like that. Really what we're talking about here is upgrading something that currently runs in many cases on a mainframe written in COBOL to something that runs on a bunch of Linux servers written in C++. That's the big difference. The architecture is the same, the centralization is the same, the control points are the same, the regulations are the same. It's a technology refresh. That's the essence of these distributed ledger technologies as well as the FedCoin model. I mean, just in a practical sense, unless we're talking about Ripple-type technologies being used as the underlying layer, we also have scaling problems that need to be solved before any of these things become viable. Yeah, those mainframes scale quite well. Exactly. I mean, like that's the upside of centralization, right? Is you don't really have to worry about creating this fully decentralized infrastructure and scaling up, you know, all of these different technologies that are designed to to delineate trust, right? <laughs> but instead are now being, I mean, like, that's the thing is like, there's a diminishing returns at a certain point where they might as well not run the distributed network at all. They might as well just run a network that I, we've talked about this in the past. Like if China was going to run a regional network, why not just have all of the hundreds of councils run the individual signing nodes that are within it and do something like DPOS? So, I mean, there are definitely like, this is coming, 
But it's these types of interim steps that are going to tell us how we get there. And also, you know, it's just the pace of technology. These scaling problems, we know that they're going to be solved, but we also know that there's not a predictable timeline on which they're going to be solved. So I think it's in everyone's best interest that we have sort of baby steps along the way. And really, that's what I see here. These are, you know, halfway steps. Yeah. I think we might already be a little bit further along on the path toward that ultimate vision than we realize, you know, with the amount of digitization that goes on in the economy anyway, already. And it's just like, how are we going to get to that destination? There are multiple paths that could be taken, and that's being fleshed out right now through various experiments like we've been talking about on this show. But it seems kind of clear what the ultimate destination actually will be. We just don't know exactly how we're going to get there, and we might be further along than we realize. I think the ultimate irony here is that these things are called stable coins, and what they're referring to is something whose value is attached to a currency that has lost 97% of its value over 100 years. That's not stable. Well, a stable down, <laughs> a stable downward slope. Right, yeah. Exactly. Slowly inflating its way to nothing. And the irony here is that that stability is desirable only in a very narrow segment of the population who is served by this kind of currency, right? For the vast majority of the world where their own national currencies are extremely volatile anyway, it's not stability that's the issue. It's preservation of long-term value that's the issue. Well, on that note, I've been talking in the back channel with Christian, who sent in some correspondence segments earlier this year from the craziness that's going on in Venezuela. And things are even crazier now than they were when we were talking to him two months ago. And the Petro plays writ large in it. I won't spoil it because we have a segment coming up. But definitely, these are early steps within sort of the everything in the world becomes a cryptocurrency stage. But it's not looking great for folks in Venezuela right now with regards to the Petro as being an actual useful thing. <laughs> so we'll be hearing about that soon. As I've said, we're about in the 10th year of the most crazy monetary experiment ever tried, and it's not cryptocurrency. It's the central banking quantitative easing, let's get $200 trillion in debt altogether game. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin, Adam B. Levine, and featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. If you have any questions or comments, email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.